Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Guys, it's Emily Jane Fox. I am here with my co-host, Joe Hagen, Inside the Hive. Another week we did it, Joe, but I feel like maybe just barely this week. You know, I'm trying to just get through day by day and mainly um, grapple with uh, apocalyptic um, nightmares. Uh, you know, ever since I read this article in the week that Matt Drudge put on the top of his headline a week ago, the, the Dark Decade Ahead by this writer, uh, Matthew Walter, uh, who describes, uh, he says, we are not witnessing the long rumored revenge of nature, but a way of life that is always that was always unsustainable, extinguishing itself. Um, you know, gee, that's not what I needed to get through the night. Um, that's a real kick in the pants. It's a kick in the pants. I feel like... Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, there are the myopic day-to-day news details that we read on Twitter and on our Facebook feeds and the New York Times. And then occasionally you pan back and realize that we're in this sort of uh, slow-moving tsunami of change that we can't quite get our hands around. And there's all these sci-fi visions come into my head. Um, you know, uh, so I try to cling to uh, silver linings like this recent news about you know, uh, coal burning uh, way, way down and helping reverse uh, some of the climate change um, that we've, you know, was another nightmare scenario that we already had. Uh, So, you know, uh, that's how we get through day by day is with uh, grappling with the big picture and then with your small picture between your four walls. How's your small picture going? You know, it's actually not that bad. You know, uh, I have children. So on the one hand, I'm uh, running a small one-room schoolhouse. It's a little bit like little... You're also wearing your daughter's sweatshirt. I'm going to call you out on it. I'm, oh, I'm seeing Joe. Please. He's wearing the coolest sweatshirt I think I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And it turns out it's it, it was his daughter's. My teenage daughter ordered this oversized hot pink um, Stranger Things sweatshirt that she decided she didn't want to wear and so there it was lying around i put it on it fit me just and now and she recoils in horror when she sees me wearing it which is part of the amusement for me well that's that's your your you running a schoolhouse that's right i feel like i'm in like little house on the prairie or something you know i'm just sort of Mm. like we're all in our own little uh isolated uh you know prairies dealing with our um our people you know, sure. Uh, but it's all. We've only got dogs over here. Yeah, all well, dogs all the time. Right, and the dogs are looking at us like you used to go away, and now you never go away. I'm I'm very worried about the separation anxiety after all this is over. I feel like my we have a puppy, and this started when the pup we we only had the puppy for exactly a month, and I don't think that she's going to know what to do when we leave the house. She doesn't know anything else. Yeah. 
I'm glad that you're able to look forward and think about the day you'll leave the house. I mean, I guess you'll be 17 by the time we leave the house. Yeah. So yeah. that's how I feel this week. I, I will say I, I greet your apocalyptic visions with anger of my own. And maybe a bit of confusion because I feel like for the first however many weeks of this until this week, six, seven weeks, six weeks, I don't know. What time is not real. Um, I feel like everyone I knew or followed on Instagram was being really careful in a way that I was so impressed by that everyone just with a snap of the fingers and a rule from the governor just changed their way of thinking and acting and doing. And this week I'm starting to feel like people are saying more and more, well, do you think it's appropriate to, or do you feel comfortable with to hang out in your backyard? Or do you feel comfortable with the idea of going somewhere this summer or maybe renting a house together? And I don't feel comfortable with it. I don't. And I don't want to be a stick in the mud when I say that. And I don't want to come down like a school mom. But I, I think that our country is very much still in the middle of this. And I think we're going to be in the middle of it for a really long time. And that's with everyone being super careful and social distancing in a, in a real proper way. Now, I know that being outside is probably the best place it could be if you're going to ease up on some of these uh, restrictions and regulations. But I think that we all have responsibilities to ourselves. And I think we all have responsibilities to one another. And it makes me nervous to think that people who I think are really careful and really smart and really reading a lot about this are getting so tired of this already. We're just at the beginning of this. Right. People are desperate. They're desperate. And I think when when you, I know that this week I'm in Los Angeles and um, a city official said something like, we've got at least three more months of this. And people freaked out. Like people were not okay with the idea of it, but I hate to break it to them. I think that it's going to be a lot longer than three months. I think that if a politician were to say to you right now, you know what, guys, I think we're probably, we're looking at at least a year and maybe more, the, there would be a revolt. There would be a revolt. You, you can't have a politician saying to you, for at least a year, you're going to be in some version of what you're doing right now and schools probably won't open and restaurants won't look the way they look. And yeah, like maybe you'll be able to do curbside at your clothing store or furniture store and maybe construction will start up again and maybe some more people will be able to go to the office in a restricted kind of way and so it may not look exactly like it looks today but life won't return to normal for a year or 18 months or two years if someone were to say that to you there would be just total chaos in the world and so I think when people get freaked out about three months it's like what read between the lines there guys that's it's not three months that they're telling you it's an indefinite period of time. And so if people are getting restless now, I worry about what's going to happen in three months. That's my... Yeah, well, we've got day. Dr. Fauci's out there, you know, giving the... Uh, he's he's ringing that bell that this is bigger than you're acknowledging, you know, in a kind of... Uh, to counter Trump's completely fact-free uh, version of reality. Um, I already have friends who are proposing, you know, uh, social pods, in which, you know, uh, they, they're, they're actually using it as a verb, podding. Let's pod, mm. you know. Uh, that means like three families would, uh, you know, lock arms and, okay, we're all going to, you know, uh, try to be careful and trust each other so that we can have any kind of social life. 
I kind of, and I'm a little skeptical of that. I, you know, who can you trust? You never know what's going to be coming in from any direction. And it's sort of funny that we're having this conversation. We're being so careful. You and I live in these, um, you know, I live on the Eastern seaboard. You're in, uh, in LA and we have like a, we're suffering more than other places in the country and just in terms of concentration of illness. Yeah. And then, you know, you look out to places like Colorado and there's a restaurant that opens and it's like, you know, jam packed with um, sort of Trump voters who are sort of defying the whole thing and they don't care. And they are probably in less of a position to have to care, perhaps, just given uh, how much is going on in their sure. area. And uh, so you, I kind of see our uh, struggle um, being different from their struggle and it's going to have political ramifications. And yeah. Um, you already see um, Donald Trump, uh, you know, coming up with distractions for his base to get, uh, you know, worked up over like Obamagate, which is the most ridiculous thing I can imagine. How dare you talk about something our president did that way, Joe? You bite your <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I, 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 please forgive me. I saw someone say on Twitter, which is a great way to start a sentence, that um, Obamagate is a sign that Trump knows he's not doing well. Yeah. I, I actually believe, I buy that, and I'll tell you my argument, but you tell me yours first. I just feel like, I guess with re-election is the one place I may disagree with myself, because I think he's so, he is, he does have a good understanding of his base, and he does have a very keen sense of what it takes to win and a, a strong desire to win no matter what it is. But I think generally when people prescribe this great strategy to Trump, they're wrong. Like they're No. There's no great strategy to him distracting people with his tweets and um him saying this to get that. He just kind of flies by the seat of his pants. Right. That's that's my analysis. Though though I think elections are one way that that may not be true. Um, I think that it's just it's just bananas. You had Michael Flynn this week. You have Obamagate now. Uh, I don't know that there's really an appetite for this, I guess, on Fox News. But who cares? Well, that's We're living how, through I, a pandemic. I, I, I agree with you. But he is a hammer without a nail, mm. right? Obama, I mean, Biden is not there for him as a kind of, uh, as a target. You know, he's just totally. gone underground. And so he, I think that, you know, strategically, if you want to call it that, um, Trump is looking, he can't fight COVID-19. He's obviously, he's failed utterly and he's has to find, he has to find another battleground to distract his base. And he sort of pulls out like, you know, Obama and Obamagate just seems like, wasn't that season one? I think that we're done with that uh, storyline. I don't think that's going to work. I think it's too boring as a, even as a conspiracy theory distraction, you know, I don't think people are going to go for it. And then also people have other things to think about, you know, like the things we're talking about. If our justice department does go down this road, but they've let Michael Flynn off. What a weird, wacky, scary, dystopian yeah. world. Back to my apocalyptic scenarios. Back Truly. to my apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not even the apocalypse. It's probably the reality. Right. We're gonna listen back to this podcast in three months from now, and we're gonna say, "See how naive we were." Yeah. But here's a, here's a question I have, apocalypse. and this is a question I'll just throw out. I'll throw out to you and to any, who's anybody listening, and um, 
If you're listening, come visit us on Twitter. You know, Emily Jane Fox, Joe Hagan, we're there. i just curious what you think. Why, you know, Trump wants to win, and that's all he cares about. And he can't really see into the future too well, uh, you know, to see what he would be presiding over as the president mm-hmm. of his next term, which is a completely collapsed and decimated uh, country. Like, why would he uh, desire to be in power and 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 have that hanging on him? I mean, it's kind of unusual now. I'm thinking about what kind of country he's going to be president of. Is power so you know intoxicating that you'd want to uh, be in control of a country that's uh, on a downward uh, trajectory? My take is that power is so intoxicating, the actual job is not. And I think more intoxicating than anything is the win for him. I think if you told him he could win and not be president, that would be the ultimate. <laughs> yeah. So That's here we are. Take. You know, we want to, we're desperate to get together with our friends, but we can't. We're coming up with like, uh, and, and spring is here. And that's a real tough one on the East Coast because we've had a cool, a cool, cold <laughs> spring. And now the sun's coming out and you want to get out and hang with your friends. You might want to get on a subway if you're living in New York City and, uh, you know, go to Central Park. And yet now, can we get on the subway? We can get on the subway. I, I, um, I don't know that I would, but we can get on the subway. Uh, I'm not alone in my fear. Ridership on the MTA is down 92%, which is wild to think about. Yet they're still operating mostly on a full service. I think it's 75% of their service. They have made the historic decision to shut down every night between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. in an effort to both clean the subways and also um, the the city's homeless were really using the subway as a, an underground shelter. And this was an attempt for them to address that problem in the city. Our guest this week is Sarah Feinberg, who's the the interim president of the New York Transit Authority. She worked in the White House under Obama as the White House grappled with H1N1 swine flu in 2009. She was the head of the railroads. She was chief of staff of the Department of Transportation. She's someone who understands this world so well. And I got to ask her a lot of questions about the future of the MTA. I know that this week we saw um, Twitter and um, some banks grappling with the idea of working from home forever. Why pay a gazillion dollars every year for office space, particularly in Manhattan or other major cities, if you can do the job from home? And if so many people are able to do the job from home, what does that mean for our transportation system, which get most of their revenue from people crossing through tolls and and over bridges and underground. Um, and Sarah and I got to talking about really what the future of transportation looks like and how that will be funded and how that will be cleaned. She, she, she said something very interesting to me that actually made me miss the subway for the first time. Like maybe not miss the subway, but long for a day where I could see the subway. She said that uh, she's riding the subway to work most days unless she, she walks, it's warm enough to walk. And the subway is shining like the top of the Chrysler building. <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it, but I have no reason to not believe her. She's she's the one who's running it. So uh, I'm really excited for you to, to hear the interview. Would you get on the subway right now? Absolutely not. I'm not even sure I'd mm. go to the city. 
but uh, I I would I'd have to see these clean subways to believe it. Um, and uh, but I do know that um, there's eight million people uh, who are going to be interested to hear what Sarah Feinberg has to say. It's let, let them all listen. Oh, one thing she did say before you guys all listen that I just want to put out into the world. I have a I have a request for her at the end of the interview, and you all will get there. Um, but I'm curious for you guys uh, if you guys have requests for what your dream new vision subway would look like when this all gets there. My request was um, for never having to touch those things in the station. I'm already a crazy person about them. Like I would never, I would use something between my finger, like a tissue or a receipt or something like that. And so my request to her was never having to touch any kind of thing to buy my Metro card. So I'm I'm curious what your requests would be. I'm going to uh, let you know after I hear this interview. Okay, let's get to it. I am so grateful that we have Sarah Feinberg as our guest today because there is literally no one who I can think of who's more at the nexus of all the big things that we're facing today from coronavirus to public transportation, evolving workplaces, and how an actual actual functioning government handles a pandemic and economic crisis. Sarah has been serving as the interim president of the New York City Transit Authority for the last three months quite timing. She has served as the president of the Federal Railroad Administration as the and as the chief of staff of the Department of Transportation. She has also worked as a special assistant to President Barack Obama and as a senior advisor to his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, where she advised on the administration's response to the swine flu pandemic and on economic recovery after the last Great Recession. Sarah, I know how busy you are, so I'm so grateful for you spending a little time with us here. Welcome. I'm, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you. What a list of things you have done in your life so far and, and what timing you had on starting your job, I believe right at the beginning of March to step yeah. in as interim president. I can't tell if that's the best timing or the absolute worst timing in the world. And I think you probably have, have a better sense of that than I, I know. do. The timing was crazy. I mean, it wasn't, it had started, obviously. Um, you know, people were talking about it. People were familiar with COVID, but there was definitely absolutely zero sense that it was going to become what it became in, in New York um, and what it has become in New York. Um, so it's both, you know, terrible timing and also great timing. I mean, it's terrible timing because, oh my gosh, all the, you know, the things I was going to do feel like they've been thrown out the window and it's, it's 24-7 on COVID. But, you know, it's also, I think, people who, you know, love to serve the public, who love to be public servants and love um, government roles, you know, they want the ball um, in big moments like this. And so, sure. you know, if I were not inside, I would be reading everything I could get my hands on and probably emailing people unhelpful suggestions and volunteering for task forces, <laughs> things like that. So I'm sure they'd be glad to have you volunteering, <laughs> I <know>. but I, <laughs> I can say um, so many people are glad that you are not just volunteering and not just sending emails, that you are the one who's in the thick of this as you're making all these big decisions. You just brought something up that I've been thinking about as I prepared for this, and that is is the fact that um, you 
had all these big plans when you came in. You you had been on the board of the MTA before this, and you had been a pretty activist member of that board. You had a lot of big things. What are the things that you've had to sort of put on the back burner because there's just no room on the front burner with coronavirus right now? Um, Well, you know, first of all, the accessibility of the system Mm. is really important to me. So I've spent, I spent about a year on the MTA board before taking this job. And um, before that, I served on the Amtrak board. And um, I just, in my life, (laughs) become very frustrated with how inaccessible our transit system is and many transit systems, um, you know, sort of around the country and not just transit systems, but just the cities themselves and buildings. And and, um, I just think about that all the time, how, you know, there's a whole portion of our population that... Is, you know, spe- either spends their um, many of hours a day in a wheelchair, or they're pushing a baby stroller, or they've, um, you know, they're walking with a cane, or they have some kind of impairment that makes things more difficult for them. And um, and you know, for New York City to have a transit system that is not welcoming to all people from all walks of life makes mm. me a little crazy. And so that was, that was something I was going to spend a lot of time working on. Um, you know, I have a two-year-old, so she's She's rarely in a stroller these days because she she feels strongly that she should walk everywhere. But she was in a stroller for a really long time, and I struggled with that. And I always just had the view that this is so temporary for me because at some point she'll be walking and, you know, we'll just be holding hands walking up these stairs. But um, I just always was thinking about folks who, um, you know, are dependent on elevators and escalators. And so, yeah, so when I came in, that was going to be one of the big things I focused on. And we just had... Um, passed a capital program where we were going to throw a ton of money at it and we were going to make you know more than 70 stations accessible and um you know and it was just one of the things that we were going to do doesn't mean we're not going to do it now but i can tell you that i haven't spent a lot of time on it the last three months which is a bummer um i can imagine that you've had that there's nothing that i think could be more noble or pressing to the subway system as it is or to any transit system uh, other than a, a, a pandemic, which happened to come right. your way, right. what, 10 days in on the job was, or two less than two weeks into the job, the entire city shut down. What was the, the atmosphere like when you first started and how quickly did that shift once you were in the building? So... So I basically decided to take the job within a day or two. It was a very quick turnaround. Um, and, you know, it was the my predecessor, Andy Byford, had um, resigned and it was clear from the very beginning that we weren't going to have time to do a big search. We were going to have to find an interim person. And, you know, this sometimes happens on boards. You're the, you know, you're the chair of the committee or you're the chair of the board and, you know, the person leaves. And so you suddenly find yourself being the CEO of the company. And so, um, so it, 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 I sort of turned around on the decision pretty quickly and it was the end of February and I was going to start March 9th and my family and I had this long planned vacation we were going to take just for like three days, just a couple of days, the week of the second to get away. And, um, oh I was gosh. trying to, where were you going to go? I know we were like going to go somewhere warm and it was going to be sunny. And, you know, we hadn't, it was Ugh. March. We hadn't seen the sun in like months. And, um, and I was trying to protect that. I was trying to protect that time and then start a couple of days later. Um, and, you know, we hadn't been away since like August or whatever. And, um, and then within like a day, I just, it was like February 28th or something. I was like, oh no, I'm not. Nope. 
<laughs> that is not happening. <laughs> this is just, this is like ramping up way too fast. And at the same time, I was like, also, I'm not taking my family on a plane right now. Like, I'm not going to sure. get stuck somewhere and, you know, um, have a, have a, you know, hotel decide that they're going to quarantine, you know, the hotel's going to quarantine itself and we can't get back and, um, and all that. So, so, so within like a day or two, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not taking that vacation anymore. And within like a day of that, I was like, oh, and I'm also going to start a week early. So I started a week early, and I call that the week that the taxpayers got for free because um, I just sort of showed up and had to start um, start executing even though none of the paperwork was done. So um, So it was just immediately all – it was just immediately all COVID all the time. I think maybe there was like a day that wasn't – all COVID, um, maybe one day. A one shining day. One day. And then like day two, it was like, oh, I don't know why we thought we were going to have a meeting on that. Let's, (laughs) we have to like turn, (laughs) we have to totally turn our shift to COVID. I think it was like my second day in the office, we, we announced that we were going from disinfecting stations once a day to disinfecting stations twice a day, which sounds kind Mm. of like an obvious thing that you would do, but, um, but we've, almost 500 stations. And if you're disinfecting 500 stations twice a day, like the logistics, you know, and the workforce required are pretty significant. So walk me through the logistics of, of making that kind of change and the workforce requirements. Are you, I'm, I'm presuming you're not hiring new people, but I'm, I'm, I'm presuming you're either dispatching people to do different things or having people work longer or more efficiently? I have no idea how you put into place something like that. Yeah. So I, so I work really closely with Sally Labrera, who um, is, is awesome. She runs the subway system um, and she and I work really closely on these things. And so generally it just means that I'm calling her saying, okay, this is what we're doing now. What if we had to take it to twice a day? And she's like, well, we just can't. And I'm like, well, I think we have to. And she's like, well, that's, we're not going to be able to. And then, like, you know, within 20 minutes, she's like, well, actually, I think we could shift some things this way. And I'll say, well, what if we, you know, moved some people from the yard to the stations? What if we added a shift? What if we, you know, started moving people on trains instead of using their own vehicles? You know, you just sort of like, it's a huge logistical challenge. And it's a, it's like a puzzle. I mean, it's really fun too. It like definitely stretches that part of my brain. And, um, you know, how many cleaners do you have? How many contractors do you have? What shifts are they working? Where can you move them? What can they do? You know, do you have the equipment? Do you have the dispensers? You know, are they riding the trains at night? Are they, you know, how are they getting between stations? So it's, um, it's, it's a massive like logistical puzzle. It's pretty fun. It's a lot of, a lot of pieces that have to come together quickly and, and know that the, the pieces are people. Yeah. And that adds such a weight to these decisions. Are you still taking the subway to work? Yes, uh, most days. So um, sometimes I walk like this morning I walked because it was a beautiful morning and I had and everything that was stacked up was calls. And so I walked this morning. Um, Mm. But generally, yeah, I'm still taking I take the system every day. Have you noticed a difference since Mar- I mean, obviously, the number of people is down so dramatically. Besides crowding, have you seen people cleaning the subways? Have you noticed that the trains themselves are oh, cleaner? Oh, my God. They sparkle. They, I mean, they shine like the top of the Chrysler building. <laughs> Little mean, Orphan Annie so, had it right. <laughs> right? I mean, they look so good right now. I'm so proud of it. Um, you know, this the subway system has gone through a lot of ups and downs over the last um, several weeks. Um, some, sure. Some, some 
deep, some deep, dark lows um, that were pretty dark. And I feel like we are coming, we're coming out the other side. Um, like we're not there yet, but I can see it and we're getting there. And I will say that right now, um, you know, having executed this overnight shutdown, which is totally unprecedented and throwing all the resources at the cleaning and disinfecting and making sure everyone's leaving the system and then has to reenter it in the morning. It has made just a all the difference in the world. I mean, they are, the trains are sparkling, the stations are clean, and, you know, we are cleaning 24 hours a day, and it shows, and it's just, it's a sight to behold. It's, I mean, if you're a New Yorker and you're listening to this and you haven't been riding the system, you know, come out and see it because it is beautiful. I, I truly don't think I ever thought I would say this in my life as a longtime uh, germaphobe, but I, you're actually making me miss riding the subway right now. Yeah, yeah. It's I like, never thought look, I'd I, say that. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love the system. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it has its moments and there are, it will make you like raise your fists in fury. But, um, you know, it's like the great common denominator in our city. And, you know, it works and it's not always pretty and it can be kind of stinky and gritty and grimy. And um, but like, you know, there's a lot of humanity down there. <laughs> it's like sure. the common, you know, the, the thing that brings New York together. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> talk to you about uh, closing the subways and cleaning and why that all happened. But uh, you just said that that there have been some real lows in the last uh, couple of months. And I'm wondering what the lowest point was for you. Oh, um, I mean, I sent a lot of evening commutes going back home after having been in the office, you know, until eight or nine o'clock or something, probably a little later than you want to be um, out in the middle of a <laughs> the desolate city in the middle of a pandemic. And just riding the system and like the place just felt so desolate. And the few people who were out um, were clearly, you know, individuals, you know, either experiencing homelessness or experiencing like real mental illness. Um, and, mm. you know, we've been having this conversation for many months. You know, the folks who have nowhere to go, still have nowhere to go during the pandemic. And so those are the people who are out and, you know, they're, they desperately need help and they're not in a great place. And, you know, that was what the subway system felt like there for a couple of weeks. Um, 
because everyone else is home, as they should be, and um, and no one else is out. And so that was sure. those were those were dark days for the system. I, again, I feel like we're coming out of that, and I'm seeing you know I'm seeing more people in the system. Um, I'm seeing a lot of workers in the system. I'm seeing a lot of essential workers in the system. I mean, personally, I've, <laughs> I mean, I you know there have been many dark moments. I mean, we have lost you know we have lost so many men and women uh, who work at New York City Transit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, I mean, there were weeks when, you know, it was just one after another after another. And these are, you know, because I am new to this position, I didn't necessarily know them or work with them. But I've talked to their families and I've talked to their friends. And I, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's the loss is incalculable for a family. Um, and then, you know, you just worry about your own family. And so I've had, you know, plenty of those dark, you know, mom moments when you're worried about your own family. Sure. And you, at the, at the start of all this, you had to, to quarantine a little bit. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I had to quarantine for two weeks. So just within a couple of days, um, I think it was probably about, a month into, um, I think it was about three weeks into the job, maybe a month into the job, three different people I worked really closely with uh, got sick. And so I was sort Mm. of triple quarantined, Um, which, you know, at that point was, I mean, it was, it was challenging from a work. um, It was challenging from a work perspective. Um, But honestly, at that point I was so deep into the COVID world that I like knew that I felt healthy and I didn't have any symptoms. And I knew that while I had been exposed, like they were meetings and conversations, not like someone in my family was sick. So, um, sure. so it was more just a work challenge more than anything else. Yeah. Well, you are managing, is this right that you're managing 51,000 employees? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is It is a huge, I mean, I don't think people understand how large this agency is. So all of MTA is 72,000, uh, and New York City Transit's 51,000, um, depending on how you count, 53,000. Um, and so it is, It is. you know, running a massive, massive company. Sure. Now, at first, when things really started to shut down in the middle of March, uh, there was a lot of public outcry from some of the employees who were concerned that the safety precautions weren't up to the standards that they felt comfortable comfortable with. Said right. some said yeah. that uh, train operators were not wearing masks and they were asked not to because they didn't want to scare riders right. off of trains or off of platforms. But at the same time, CDC guidelines at that point were telling people that they didn't have to wear masks. And in fact, some some public officials were saying don't buy masks, don't wear masks, save them for their healthcare professionals. So there are these conflicting desires and conflicting messages. And I'm wondering what it's like to be in charge of, yeah, it must be incredibly frustrating to be in charge of 51 or 53,000 people and having conflicting guidelines from our government, from public health officials. I don't know how you decide what to tell your employees if that's the case. It was so frustrating. I'm still so, I'm still so personally angry about it. I mean, I, um, and you know, I have a long history in federal government. And so I, I like, I believe in government. I believe in, in, um, government that, you know, takes a posture of, you know, taking actions that are supposed to help people. 
Um, so from the very beginning, you know, when this whole thing started, you know, there was starting to be some noise about like folks wanted to wear masks. And I just remember being like, guys, the CDC says we're not, we're not supposed to wear masks. I mean, we're, you know, they're only for healthcare workers and the medical guidance is they will, if you are not ill, it only um, increases your likelihood that you will um, end up sick because you'll be touching your face and you'll be moving the mask and you won't be wearing it properly and all that stuff. And so I was like, look, we're, we're a transportation agency. We're not a medical agency or a health agency, so we're going to follow their lead. And, yeah, there was a memo that went out because we had some folks who wanted to wear a mask anyway, and we sort of talked about it. And we were like, well... And it was a big debate internally because I was like, I could kind of go either way. I don't really mind. Um, but there were other folks who were like, eh, you know, that it's not a great look because we're telling people that they don't have to wear masks. And so then if we've got employees who are wearing masks and other people are going to be like, well, if he's wearing a mask, why aren't we wearing masks? And anyway, pretty quickly, it just felt like a race to the bottom. And so, um, you know, I just sort of was like, well, the medical guidance is don't wear a mask. So that I can't imagine we're going to be anywhere other than that. And then it just kept going and going and going. And it just, and I started personally being like, I didn't buy masks for my family. I didn't buy a mask for myself. Like I should have, you know, I could have gone on Amazon with everybody else in February and March and bought um, masks, but I didn't do it because I thought I wasn't supposed to. And, um, and I think people were increasingly kind of thinking, how is this possible? Like, why is this the medical guidance? But, you know, I'm not a doctor. And then I will never forget, like, Pat Foy, the CEO of all of MTA and I, were preparing together for um, some kind of press. I, I don't even remember what it was. And we were discussing that we were just still on this bind. And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, let's just let's just start distributing masks. Like, let's just get, I mean, let's just say we're going to do it. And what's the CDC going to say? Like, it, it's become clear, it's become really obvious that you're clearly not putting yourself in harm's way at this point if you're wearing a mask. So let's just do it. And, right. um, and you know, if they tell us that we're making a terrible mistake, then they tell us we're making a terrible mistake, but we're like on the leading, leading edge of this crisis and there's no one to follow. So we should, let's just do it. And we just did it. And we announced it that day. And, and, um, and people were sort of like, what the CDC says, you shouldn't do this. And we were like, that, that's, that's where we are. I mean, that's, it's not right to just keep listening um, to that guidance when it's clearly not, not right anymore. Um, What's scary to me is, is if you're you and you've already been misled or sent down a path that you didn't feel comfortable with by our public health officials, by the CDC, by the administration, how are you to trust them again? If they're telling you guidelines now that are soon going to be later revised and you will have put tens of thousands of people in harm's way because of those guidelines, how can you trust these people again to put your safety and put your, your own health in the, the right path? Yeah. I mean, Having worked in a White House and worked closely with the CDC, I, I sort of couldn't believe where we had found ourselves because I know that the CDC is better than that. Um, and But it was just, I remember sort of going home that night and being like, I don't know why I'm surprised because this is sort of what what government has been like the last couple of years. Like, you know, they're not on your side. <laughs> you know, like I keep having to remind myself of that. Like they're not here to help you. 
um, which is, you know, I can't tell you how much it pains me as like a government person um, to have to remind myself all the time that like the federal government is no longer here to help you. You are on your own. They don't care. Um, Look, obviously, that's that's probably that's too sweeping for for every person in the federal government, but um, but that's that's how it's felt um, during this crisis for sure, and that is obviously how it's felt under this administration for a long time for New Yorkers, for women, for parents, for you know regular people. <laughs> sure. So, what do you what kind of safety measures do you then, as an expert who? has spent a lot of time in government uh, and I think is a responsible leader. What do you do to protect your workers now? So we are basically doing all of the, all of the obvious things and constantly figuring out what we can do on top of that. So we've passed out tons of masks. I think we're at like 2 million masks and, you know, several million gloves and hand sanitizer and, you know, reminding people to wash their hands. And, you know, that's sort of like first level common sense stuff. And then sort of next level is a bunch of stuff that we did in March. Um, And I guess going into April, you know, that might not um, be obvious, but that we were just trying to do everything we could to protect the workforce. So we started um, having people board buses only in the back, not in the front, so that they weren't, mm-hmm. you know, literally walking up to the operator uh, and then walking by um, him or her. So we were did rear door boarding. We stopped taking cash in our um, booths, not because we necessarily felt that that cash was necessarily um, transmitting the virus, but just the less human interaction you can have face-to-face when someone's sort of, you know, trying to yell into a booth, we thought, you know, the better. Um, So we did all of, we did, we took those measures. And now we're sort of at a point where we're just open to anything. Um, So the other thing we did is we, we, we um, barriered off a lot of space between the bus operator and, and the riders um, to protect the operator a little bit more. So we're sort of open to anything at this point. We are doing all of those things and we're also just trying to figure out, you know, what's in the realm of the possible as ridership comes back? You know, is it, distributing masks? Is it distributing sanitizer? Is it, you know, what kind of social distancing? Um, You know, we have spent a lot of time thinking through um, how we can help our workforce social distance. So, you know, these are folks who are gathering in crew rooms and break rooms and, you know, small spaces where they are, um, you know, doing sort of a fitness for duty um, check and, you know, before they go off and operate um, a train or they're checking in at a depot before they operate a bus. And these are close quarters. And so what can we do to make sure that people are able to maintain social distance and um, steer clear of each other? We're doing temperature checks. We have like a temperature brigade that goes out and takes the temperatures mm. of thousands of people every day. Um, so, all, you know, all of that, it's an all, like an all of the above approach to try to make sure that we're doing everything we can. Sure. The, the thing that I think about all the time in terms of everything related to the virus and, and people who are going to work right now, but particularly for, for your workforce, um, is that there's such a stratification between people who have the luxury of listening to the stay-at-home orders, of, of yep. working from home, of not having to get on a train or a bus every day, yep. and the people who, A, don't have the economic option to stay home, their jobs require them to be there in person, and B, you know, the the people who are coming to work every day for you guys are are really an essential service. They're keeping 
subways and buses running for doctors and people who are first responders and police officers and firefighters. Right. And it's just such a, an economic stratification between the people who can really protect themselves by staying home and people who have to protect the rest of us by going to work. Right. And so, and, and I think that that became obvious, you know, that became obvious to everyone a couple of days into this thing. Not everyone at MTA, I mean the world, right? Because, because the order was stay at home and you quickly realized that if you can stay at home, what a luxury, you know, you might be annoyed and um, stir crazy, but what a luxury that you can either perform, you either can go without performing your job or you can perform your job while protecting yourself and your family. Um, and I think, you know, one of the interesting pieces of all this has been certainly the, um, you know, the recognition that transit workers are, are heroes and are first responders in this case um, and certainly essential workers. But, you know, when you become a police officer or a firefighter or a nurse um, or a teacher or a doctor, you sort of know what you're signing up for. You, like, raise your hand and you say, I'm, I'm deciding to go into a line of work where I will put um, other people's lives in front of my own. I will, you know, take a bullet. I will run into a burning building. I will... And that is not necessarily what transit workers signed up for, right? And sure. and that is not a criticism. That is just like, um, you know, pharmacists don't sign up for that. And lawyers don't sign up for that. Um, you know, we have like an unbelievable workforce that signed up to operate trains and buses because it's a great job. It has great benefits. Their dad did it. You know, it's a good life. Um, it's they love trains. They love the subway system. They love transportation and buses and um, being out in the city and seeing all walks of life. They, you know, that is what they signed up for. And all of a sudden, here we are in this pandemic. And, you know, it's like now you're on the front lines of fighting, you know, a global crisis and you have to show up and you um, have to be exposed to the public and you have to, you know, if you're a conductor, you have to pull into every train station and stick your head out the window at every train yes. station that you're in, you know, and look for riders and then pull back out. And so it's just like it's constant exposure. And um, I think it's been, un you know, incredibly stressful and, um, and eye-opening for not for the people who work in this building because we all knew it, but for, for the rest of the city and the world. Well, you, you talked about this before, um, but one of the things you're doing to both protect your workers but really to pr protect the riders is by shutting down the subways. Now, in 116 years of the subways, this has happened before. This isn't the first time, but it's one of a few times, and, and you're doing it every night. The, the subway is no longer 24 hours a day. It is closing between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., right. which I can imagine is a gigantic undertaking. And it came after uh, the Daily News published uh, photos and an article that showed a really dilapidated, dirty-looking system where yeah. um, there were, you know, I think there were 2,200 homeless New Yorkers who were staying on trains each night, yeah. and it wasn't allowing for you guys to clean properly. Right. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, governor much celebrated. I know um, you, you've had a long relationship with him. Uh, I think he referred to the 
photos that that ran in the Daily News is disgusting. Yeah. I'm wondering what your reaction was when you saw the photos um, and saw what was going on. And then what happens when you when you decide to shut the system down? How do you go about doing that every night? Yeah. So my reaction to the photos and the press coverage, frankly, was was finally, um, you know, for a year as as transit chair of the MTA board, I was, you know, holding this problem saying, like, how come the transportation agency, the transit agency is the one holding the bag on the homeless problem in New York City? And, you know, we've got a mayor that talks about solving the homeless problem all the time. And we've got homeless advocates and we've got, um, you know, you know, the advocacy community. And yet, um, the MTA seems to be the ones who are housing everyone, you know, and mm-hmm. the shelter system is broken and no one wants to be in it and it's dangerous and it's, it's, it's doesn't seem to have like right sized to the problem. And so we've got thousands of people who are sleeping in our system every night. And that is, you know, that is so wrong on so many levels. First of all, it is wrong for people to be at a point where that's the decision because the shelter system is so bad that they feel like they can't go there and they feel like, you know, if they go to a hospital, they are, you know, helped for a short amount of time and then they're back on the street and, you know, they can't go to other public space because they're kicked out or, you know, the other public space options in the winter don't work. And so they're sleeping in, you know, a subway system, which is, um, which is just, it's like such a clear abandonment of, a population that that like desperately needs help and that is so vulnerable and it's such a failure of mental health services in this city it just mm. blows my mind and you know um so so that's a it's a problem i've been dealing with for a year on the board and had been very frustrated with and we had in fact set up a program almost a year ago that went into the system at night to the end of line stations and tried to get um, folks, uh, homeless individuals, to accept, accept services and go to shelters. But the reality was is that the system is that the, the, um, the process that we had set up wasn't working. And it was super frustrating to me because we were spending a lot of money on it, and it clearly wasn't making that much of a dent. Um, mm. because they didn't because these folks did not want to go to the shelters. And so when those pictures started coming out, I was frankly relieved because um, I, I knew that it would be a forcing mechanism to have the policy conversation that I had not previously been able to, to make happen. So I had, you know, I had asked for meetings with the mayor. I had called, you know, I had called and said, I want to talk about his transit priorities. I want to talk about how we can work together. And, and those did he set a meeting? They just had not been engaged. They just, you know, every now and then I would talk to members of his staff, but they just were not. I think that, look, I think they've got a lot of problems on their plate, and I think they either consciously or subconsciously felt like the homeless problem in the subway system was inherently, you know, one that existed underground, and it was out of sight and out of mind. And as long as it was really the MTA's problem, that was a problem that they weren't going to prioritize. Well, how could you effectively talk about the homelessness problem in the city if you're not addressing the homelessness problem on the subway? I don't know how you could possibly unlink the two of those things. But look, I mean, I think the mayor doesn't ride the subway. 
right? I think a lot mm-hmm. of the people who spend time with him, who either work with him or for him, may ride the subway, but they don't ride it at night. Um, they're probably riding it, um, you know, during pre-pandemic times when there are millions of people in the subway system. And so individuals' encounters with someone who's, who's experiencing homeless is something where you can just say, I went to the next car, or that guy didn't smell good, or right. boy, that was a disaster, you know, that seemed like a mess. And, you know, it was one experience in your commute last month or whatever. Um, but but they are not seeing it day in and day out. And they're, it's not in their face like it is for, you know, folks who ride the system every single night or for our cleaners whose entire job is to go into these trains and try to clean. And we're on a daily basis faced with folks who had treated our train as, you know, a shelter, as a restroom, um, you know, or as their kitchen. And, um, and again, like, I, I want to be clear, like, these are folks who need significant help. My father is, um, was a longtime corporate attorney in West Virginia. His second act is running a soup kitchen. <laughs> like we are mm-hmm. a family that, that believes that you, you know, you offer help. You are a public servant. You give a hand up. You, you give the last dollar out of your pocket. You help your neighbor. So I'm an absolute believer in that. But the, but what we were, where we were in the subway system was, you know, at a place where we weren't helping folks, people were just avoiding it. And the mayor was ignoring it. And homeless advocates, I think, believe that it's a, it's a better option than, you know, a cold night in the city, which I understand. But, you know, the, the, the fix is not to let people stay in the subway system. The fix is fix the shelter system, you know, address the problem, you know, fix the housing crisis. It's not, well, that place, you know, the subway system's warmer, so let's just let it, let's let it fester there. That is just, you know, it's just a, you know, you're just burying the problem. Well, it's it's not even putting a Band-Aid on, on, on the problem. It's just, it's truly, as you said, out of sight, out of mind. It's not, it's not solving anything. Totally. Yeah, it didn't solve anything. And so so a big part of me was like, you know what, great, because that's what this system is right now. While it's this desolate, while no one else is riding it, that's what this system has become. And it is it is so unfair to the men and women of New York City Transit who show up day in and day out, who, you know, are trying to operate a train or trying to clean a train. And it's like they're cleaning a bathroom stall. And it's just not right. So anyway, so it was a it was a really important forcing mechanism to make a policy decision, which I feel like is where we landed, you know, where the, the mayor and the governor had a couple conversations and just decided, you know what, we're not going to get people back into the system unless there's confidence in the system. And there's not going to be confidence in the system unless, you know, it is um, clean and people feel like, you know, they're not just seeing it, but they're feeling it and they're sensing it and they're smelling it. And so that's what we have to throw things at. And, you know, it's not sure. the, it's not an entire reopening strategy, but it's a piece of it. And I think we 100% made the right call. And, you know, to answer your question, it is a massive logistical undertaking to shut down a subway system <laughs> overnight and then start it back up at five o'clock in the morning. And um, it was a sight to behold um, to see it all happen. And um, and it took thousands of people, but it was an amazing sort of wind down of the system and then you wind it back up. It's pretty incredible. I, I feel like I wish there was a, a time lapse video of it to see it happen in real time because those of us who aren't you didn't get to see it. And I would just imagine what a 
feat it all must be and what it must look like. Yeah, it's, I mean, went to step off a train at an end of line station and have like not one, not two, but like 18 or 12 or whatever um, cleaners like snap in and like um, sort of surge into a train and start cleaning because they have to turn it around for like on like a 10 minute, you know, turnaround oh or a 15 minute turnaround. I mean, it's just awesome. The people who are cleaning the trains are real heroes and I'm, I'm so grateful for them. No, they are. I mean, they, they, they totally are. They do great work. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. You just, you mentioned that ridership is so down and that's why this is a, a time to work mm-hmm. on attracting new people. I think that ridership is down more than 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still Covering, operating yeah. services at, at, at about 75%, right? Like most of the lines are still running apart from the closure in the middle of the night. Most of the revenue that you guys bring in comes from people going through tolls or uh, buying Metro cards. Mm -hmm. And then a portion of it is comes from uh, local taxes, state taxes. Yeah. You guys have already gotten $3.9 billion in grant money from the federal government to deal with uh, what has happened to ridership since yep. coronavirus gripped the city. You've asked for the same amount more, another $3.9 billion. The agency has said that they're projecting that for 2020 and 2021, there will be a um, a, a budget hole of $10.4 billion. I'm wondering how you weather this financially with no one taking the subway as they took it before, um, with expenses for cleaning the subways going up and, and no real clear picture of where revenue will come from. Yeah. How do you plug that hole? Yeah, I mean, the short answer, the short answer is that the MTA is probably too big to fail. Um, and that will be like fingernails on a chalkboard to a lot of people. Um, but mm. I think it's the reality. I, I mean, New York City just doesn't work without a functioning subway system uh, and bus system. I mean, this is not a city where people could choose to drive if they wanted to. I mean, first of all, you know, people, not everyone has cars. Um, Second of all, if folks, even if the folks who did have cars decided to do that, you know, you'd you'd make it about 15 minutes before you realized, like, you're literally never going to even make it to the gas station (laughs) to fill up Mm. the tank of gas that you just ran through while you were sitting on the FDR. So, I mean, we just don't have the room for it. Congestion is too terrible. So, it's just not an option. And that doesn't mean that we get to be, um, you know, poor stewards of taxpayer dollars. It doesn't mean we get to be wasteful. It doesn't mean that, you know, we should do anything other than be incredibly mindful of every taxpayer dollar that's spent. But I, I just don't think it's an, I mean, it's not an option for the MTA to go bankrupt. It's not an option for the subway system not to operate. And look, the, the, Reality is that, you know, we can increase fares, we can do 
um, you know, we can try to run the system with fewer people, we can cut service, but that's all nibbling around the edges um, because the losses are so significant. Um, you know, at the beginning of this, I was thinking to myself like, oh my God, this I feel like this could be as bad as the financial crisis. And of course, the financial crisis is, you know, it is like a drop in the bucket compared to what we're all living through now. So I just think totally. this is like the proportions are just astronomical. And and the thing that I think is is different is that things, sure, they, they change, but they didn't change totally permanently after the financial crisis. And I think a hallmark of what we're living through now is that I think life will be fundamentally different in some ways after this. We're already starting to see that. Uh, Twitter announced earlier this week mm-hmm. that if workers want to work from home permanently, they can. And there was a great story in the New York Times about uh, well, a terrifying story that was very well written and reported in the New York Times, I should say, uh, about about banks and other employers in the city saying, we're, we're probably not going to get back to the level of in-office working ever because real estate costs are so high. And so yeah. if you're not having people commuting every day, like they're commuting every day before all of this, I don't know what you do to to account for a ridership difference. I can't imagine that you're going to have the number of people commuting every day that you had before. And that's an essential part of getting people on the subway. Right. Well, I think I think you're right that it's going to take a very long time for ridership to come back. Like this isn't going to be ridership is not coming back in 3 months or 6 months or a year. It's going to take longer than that to get back to, you know, to get back to real levels. But some of it has to come back because that's that's what people's options are. And if you live pretty far out, walking is not an option and biking's not an option for a lot of people and Ubers become expensive really fast and taxis become expensive really fast and you know, people don't all have their own car. And so it just it, it, we will end up um, with ridership coming back because that is the option, right, um, for a lot of people. Um, I, you know, I do worry that the um, system could become sort of the um, the system that's used by the working poor um, because I worry a little bit that um, – everyone else will decide that they are working from home. Um, because, what, you know, what the New York Times story talked about, what the, what the New York Times story didn't really capture is that when you start talking about banks and tech companies and huge real estate firms and, you know, um, the folks who, you know, <laughs> like the big buildings on, you know, 6th Avenue, um, you're talking about... I guess about, most of them are not riding the subway anyway. Yeah, well, some a lot of those folks who do ride the subway, it's totally true, but it's not that that's not the majority of New York City, right? Right. Um, so those are there's a lot of people in a lot of big buildings. There's there are tens of thousands of people, but um, there are a lot more folks who work in grocery stores and that clean office buildings and that you know work in restaurants and work in bookstores and work in retail and work in salons and um, work on construction crews and work at the MTA and do all of those jobs um, you know it, it's not just and, and those those aren't work from home jobs like you don't get to work from home if you work in a nail salon um, you know so I mean like the totally. future of nail salons is probably a different topic but um, but I can a lot go on about folks, that for days. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's the luxury. Like, who gets to telework? Not that many people. I mean, some people exactly. certainly get that that luxury and that benefit. But everyone else is gonna is still gonna have to get to work. I, 
I'm not sure. I mean, I think that we're going to end up being a culture that, like, takes advantage of outdoor space a lot more. I mean, I'm glad mm. that the mayor has taken some steps to, to close a bunch of streets to traffic. Um, and I think more and more there's just going to be massive demand for that. I think if you can close mm. some streets and, like, expand outdoor seating of restaurants into the street, you know, you'll get people taking you up on going to restaurants again. If people's, you know, work can be done from tented facilities and Bryant Park, you know, then I think people will stay in the city and do work. But if if the answer is sharing, a, you know, being next to somebody in a cubicle, people aren't going to feel comfortable with that. But you know, if it's right. over if it's over forty five degrees or less than a hundred, I think people will be willing to be outside. You know, well, you see that in in normal times, the second the the weather gets above. 48 degrees, you people out in flip-flops on the street. And I think that people having been in their small apartments for months on end will just be so grateful to be outside, even if it's doing work or having a normal work day outside. New York comes alive when yeah. you're able to, to actually sit somewhere and the weather is not brutal. I, I really do see that as a way forward here. Yeah. I'm wondering what you learned in the White House. I know that you were there during... H1N1, the swine flu in 2009. Is there anything that you learned in your time in, in that administration that you take with you now as you're working to sort of solve the puzzle that you're tasked oh with? Oh my God. So, yeah, so much. Um, I mean, just on the pandemic stuff specifically, I think the, the main thing I learned was the like the follow-on consequences of these things are just you know, are multiples that you can't even see coming. So, you know, you sort of quickly get your head around like, okay, what are we going to do if like emergency rooms get overwhelmed? And if emergency rooms get overwhelmed, then what is the street outside the emergency room? And what is traffic? And, you know, you sort of start figuring out quickly those like immediate consequences if if hospitals become overwhelmed sort of what the what the governor has very has been going through very publicly, you know, what what happens when you run out of ventilators? But it's like all of the follow-on consequences that are totally unpredictable that um, that are really hard to prepare for, but that always come. So, um, you know, a good example is like when everyone leaves your subway system, what does your subway system become? Right. I think we all mm. predicted that ridership was going to go down to almost nothing. And in fact, I thought the most likely thing that was going to happen was that it would be important for me to be able to offer to the governor a tool you know, if if things get even worse, do you want us to shut down the system so that people cannot travel and so that people will sort of be forced to stay where they are? I thought that I thought we might end up in a dark place going in that direction. I did not. Did you ever talk to the governor about that? We, you know, we many times presented all options. Like you can, you can keep things the way they are, or you can take it all the way down to to nothing. I think, you know, mm. those were those were clear, clear sort of, um, you know, offerings from the beginning because you can, you know, you can toggle these tools in various ways to just make sure that, you know, you are always presenting the leadership with options so that they can make the best decisions they can make to keep people healthy. So. Um, but I mean, I think a consequence that maybe it took us a minute to see coming was if, when ridership goes down, um, you know, who's in the system? And while I, you know, sort of saw desolate stations and like, could we end up with crime going up? Could we end up with burglaries? Could we end up with sort of general mischief? I'm not sure that everyone saw coming like 
it could be that you just end up with folks in your system who have nowhere else to go um, and mm-hmm. who are experiencing some kind of mental uh, issue. And then what does that, what, it, what, what happens to that mental issue when you're in like a desolate, empty train station? Um, sure. You know. So just anyway, so so I so I think a lot of the sort of follow-on consequences of these big crises, um, and you know, generally just working in the White House, I had worked for Rahm Emanuel for years, and he remains like one, you know, probably the smartest person I've ever worked with. And so I was going to ask you if you if you were speaking to him throughout this, if he's yeah, been able to offer yeah, any advice. he's like a member of my family. We we are very close, and so mm. um, I certainly like ask him his advice sometimes. But our conversations are a lot of like you know, like family kind of check ins too. So, mm. um, but you know, I learned so much from him um, in, in the White House job, but also in all my other jobs that, you know, I just felt like I was always, every day I was learning something. Well, how do you think that this administration has done so far? Uh, I mean, I just, I think I've been so frustrated and, and disappointed, I think, um, like many people. I mean, you know, from the, from, the begin- <laughs> from the beginning, I tried to have high hopes and, um, you know, believe that, um, maybe this would work out, that maybe decisions would not be based on politics, they'd be based on policy, and maybe, you know, um, we could come through this okay, and it would be a test of, you know, democracy and the American spirit, but it would all be okay. Um, and I think, like a lot of people, it's I just am consistently disappointed. And, um, you know, it's particularly heartbreaking when, you know, you, you're someone who's devoted your career to government to watch it become what it has. But I mean, you know, this government has not been helpful to those struggling with this crisis. And, you know, I'm from West Virginia. So um, I grew up like in a coal state. And, you know, I think in a a state that that supported Trump by leaps and bounds, like huge margins. And, you know, I just watch his treatment of, of the people of my state. And it's just you know, it's it's not government public service. It's not, um, you know, it's it's nothing that anyone promised. It's just, I mean, it's such a clear message to um, anyone who's struggling, anyone who's not wealthy, anyone who's like working to get by that, you know, I just don't care about you. You don't matter. Mm. Yeah. And I think that, that you've seen, that's why you've seen government and uh, governors and mayors and, and local officials step up to the plate so much because there's been this real dearth of leadership from the tippy top. And I mean, you've you've seen it as much as anyone has, but people are obsessed with Governor Cuomo. There's a real Cuomo's after all this and a, a, a Cuomo or whatever you want to call it. I'm wondering what it's like for you to see that as someone. I know that the governor appointed you to the MTA board. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just people are in love with him. Yeah, I just I think it's funny because this is who he is. He's just he's very good in a crisis. He's like decisive. He pushes people very hard. He's relentless. He's like everything you want in a governor in a crisis. And, you know, before all of this happened, um, you know, that element of his personality was like somewhat controversial in some parts of New York, because particularly in, I mean, I, we don't have to get too dorky here, but like particularly in like some pieces of the, the transit transportation world, people felt like he was too hands-on, that he should just get out of the way and let, you know, transportation policy folks do what they want to do. And he should not micromanage the subways. He should not micromanage the MTA. 
should not micromanage infrastructure projects. And I just was always like, man, you do not know how lucky you are to have a hands-on governor. Like, because the opposite of a hands-on governor is a, hand, is a governor that does not care about you, does not care about your problems, does not care about executing on his or her duties, does not care about what, you know, executing on what they were elected to do. The best thing you can hope for is a governor who's hands-on, who cares about your stuff, and who is of the same mind of you. You know, of, you know you're both Democrats, you're both progressive, you're... Um, that is like, it doesn't get better than that. And so I always felt like, you know, the um, folks who were complaining about him just, you know, to a great degree, don't know how good they've got it. Um, Mm. Do you think that he'll run for president? I don't know. I mean, I think he's, I think he is very, um, I think he would be a great candidate, but I think his plate is full on the pandemic. And, Mm. you know, I think, I know that he shares my view that when, you are tackling like a challenge this big any minute that you spend not figuring out the right way to get to the other side of it uh, is, is like you've no business doing anything other than making your way through the challenge. As, as we wind up here, I I have a couple more questions for you. uh, And I want to talk to you about all the work that you're doing and, and facing this challenge. I know that you are in this position uh, as the interim president, and that you had said early on that this was not going to be a permanent job for you, that you have a two-year-old, and uh, this is a very tough job for someone with young children. Has that changed at all? Are you looking for a, a permanent replacement for the position, or is it all head down, focusing on work? You know, it's just heads down dealing with the work. Um, you know, and I think you know, I, I continue to think that this job is really hard to do um, unless you're going to just devote yourself fully to it 24-7, 365. Um, and I just, that's just not something I can do with um, with a two-year-old at home, nor is it something I should do with a two-year-old at home. So, um, so I am still interim because I don't think you can do both the job and being a mom and being a partner well at this point. So, um, so either the job has to get a little bit more manageable um, or no, that's the option. The job either has to get more mm. manageable or someone else has to come do it. Do you um, think it's possible to make the job more manageable? I think it's possible. I mean, look, we have to, we, we have to get through the crisis at hand. I mean, the, the, and the consequences of, of look, the, what is looming ahead of us, even when we get through the current crisis is, um, so hard and like, and so challenging. I mean, first of all, this is a workforce that's now lost more than a hundred people, like more than a hundred mm-hmm. colleagues. And so we have to, we will find ways to honor all, each of them um, and all of them for their public service. But like we, that is still looming ahead of us. Like that is a huge thing that's impacting this workforce and this company. Um, and there is trying to recover from the financial crisis that has, um, that is now sort of just trying to eat us alive. Um, and there's, you know, the importance of convincing the ridership that they should come back. Um, so all these are just massive, massive challenges. Um, so I think it can become more doable. I think the job can become a little bit less 24 seven. Um, but, you know, we've got a long way to go. I mean, I don't think anyone 
who works with me has taken even one day off uh, in like, Mm. you know, 10 weeks or something like that. Um, You know, no Saturdays, no Sundays. I mean, people are are just working around the clock. So, Is there anything that that, uh, makes you hopeful, any kind of innovation or look that that feels like a different uh, idea that you will bring into this next chapter, whether it's once people start going back to work or once it becomes clear that a vaccine will hopefully uh, come in into ready availability for the public. Is there anything that you've talked to people about that you've heard about that makes you feel like, oh, this is a real innovation that could change the way that we clean the systems or the way riders interact with the systems or anything that you're excited about implementing now that you you've had time to really think about what the future looks like? Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about, honestly. I mean, first of all, you know, just pushing yourself and and the workforce to the place that it's been pushed to just sort of discovers new talents and new achievements. So, you know, if you had told me, we're going to have to shut down the system overnight. I would have said, okay, well, we're going to, it's going to take us about nine months to plan for that because we're going to have to make all these service adjustments. We're going to have to make all these policy decisions about last trains and first trains and where do you preposition? And, you know, we're going to have to do a labor pick so that we figure out who's operating trains when. And it would have taken us nine months to plan and people would have like navel gazed it to death. Um, but when you say, and we're doing it in three days, um, you know, every, and, and no, and no, it's not an option not to do it. Um, you know, people sort of stand up and they just like say, okay. And they like take on the fight and, um, and they execute. And so that was like amazing, um, to see Mm. that happen because it was just like such a, such a phenomenal Herculean massive effort to be able to do it. And we did it. And I, I don't want to like, toot our horn too much, but like we like knocked it out of the park. I mean, we got like a 90% on the first night and it wasn't perfect, but we told people it wasn't going to be perfect. And, you know, we've gotten better every day. And so that, that gives me like tremendous faith in the workforce just to be able to do that. You know, within like three days, when this whole thing started, we sent thousands and thousands of people home on telework, which we're just not a telework place. We didn't have those policies in place. (laughs) Yeah, we just didn't even have those policies in place because we didn't really want people to be teleworking. And so, you know, we executed on that in a couple of days. Is it perfect? Nope. Like we need to go back and fix it and make sure that like everything is sort of running smoothly. But, um, but like executing on that stuff is really hard. And um, so that gives me a lot of faith. There's some technological, um, I think there's some tech stuff that we can get to, which I think will be very cool. Like I feel like we can, I feel like we will get to a point where we can tell riders that the approaching train is at capacity or is below capacity. So they know if they should try to board it or if they should wait till the next one or if they should walk to the next station. I think I'm that desperate. Will- I'll tell you what I'm desperate for. Okay, I'm desperate me. to be able to buy a MetroCard without having to touch a touch screen. Yeah. So, so you've been away too long because um, Omni ah. baby, Omni. <laughs> we that I know. Is like 
You need to come back and and um, get your get your get your Omni on because I that's really like the do. future. Yeah, contactless. Um, I but I, over the last couple of days, I just was like, can we not find a way to let people you know go online, enter the serial number of their Metro card, and like that's load what money? I want. Yeah, I'm told it's impossible, but you know, I'm frequently told it's impossible and then you kind of have to dig into it a little bit and make sure. But um, I'm told that, that the magnetic strip actually has to um, run through the machine, which would be... I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm counting on you to make that happen. I know. Because <laughs> I'm like, I am such a crazy person. For years, I feel like I am ahead of the corona curve, but for years I've been using like, I keep like tissues or like old receipts in my wallet. And anytime I had to refill my MetroCard, I would like use the tissue or the receipt to touch the yeah. screen so my hand didn't have to touch the screen. Like I was a real maniac about it. I feel yeah. like now the world is catching up with me. I feel less maniacal, but yeah. I'm counting on you. Well, After this. I, I will, I'm going to try to get it done for you. I will tell you that that one it. thing I did not know before I came here to MTA was that, um, you know, this is, this it drives me crazy. Um, there are folks who will intentionally vandalize our vending machines so that it is either impossible to get a Metro card, like it's jammed, you know, or they'll... Um, They'll vandalize it in a way where it's not working, or they'll just put really gross stuff on it so that no one has Ugh. any intention of touching it. And then they sell swipes by the turnstile. So they basically have have an unlimited card or a month card, monthly card or whatever, and um, and they will stand there and sell swipes um, because people can't use the vending machines. And um, I just like I just it's the lowest of the low. Like if you're That's doing that crazy. to the little to the little old ladies in the Bronx and queens like man like we're coming for you like we're gonna throw the book I at hope you. so I, just, I respect I the hustle but I hate the game really yeah. that's just so terrible yeah no you can you can't even respect that hustle like that's right no hustle, that yes, is not, not a hustle. you're hustle. totally right, right. yeah totally. you are totally right that is I will well we will both find you yeah, we're totally. looking at you. Anyone taking advantage of Those guys listen to this podcast. <laughs> right. I'm sure they do. That's our target audience. Yeah, <laughs> right. the hustlers. Exactly who we're reaching every week. Sarah, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. This was so incredibly helpful to hear about, and we are just so grateful to get to learn from you, and 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 we're so appreciative of your service to the city, I'm so to glad the MTA. To talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Thanks to my guest, Sarah Feinberg, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them the way you support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.